This podcast is a TWTT production. Let's enjoy sake. Hot or cold. Let's enjoy sake. All together with you. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 12 of TWTT, the podcast. My name is Simone Maynard from Melbourne, Australia, and joining me as always is Maki Tanaka from Tokyo in Japan. And joining us as recently always is Julian Hausman from Osaka, Japan. Maki, hello, long time no see. We hosted a Taste with the Toji session in the Zoom room last night with Furuhashi Shuzo from Shimane. Great session and lovely to see you again. How are you? Pretty good, thank you. I'm still having coughs and um, I apologize in advance, but I've got um, two uh, tamagasake today. Well, you can't see these, but I got too excited and this weekend I went in the heat, walked over to Asahiya in Setagaya and got these two babies. I see you've got the omachi there, which is one of my favorites. So uh, I finished my bottle, unfortunately, and and, uh, funny you should hold up Tamagawa because, of course, our special guest tonight is uh, the brewer of Tamagawa, which we haven't introduced to our listeners yet, but shall do after we say a quick hello to Julian. Julian, how are you? Thank you for being with us again tonight. Um, very well. Um, as a time of recording, we're just kind of going through the edge of, end of this uh, typhoon number seven. It was a bit windy during the day and a lot of rain, but seems okay so far now. Maybe tomorrow's a bit better. Um, we've seen a few a few breweries post some uh, some photos of uh, m- mild typhoon damage, so hopefully it any damage stays mild and and there's no major damage. So hopefully it passes through quickly. Well, we do have a special guest this evening and it is the brewer of Tamagawa. It is, of course, Mr. Philip Harper from Kinoshita Shuzo in Kyoto. Philip, good evening. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's it's our pleasure. Uh, Now, Philip, like our guest on our last episode, Eko Kodama, was a visitor to Melbourne recently for the Australian Sake Festival, Melbourne Leg, at the start of July. And I got to meet Philip in person and spend a fair bit of time with him, which was wonderful to do so. It was his first time in Melbourne, but second time in Australia. And Philip, how did you find the experience of the uh, Australian Sake Festival in Melbourne? Well, very pleasantly surprising. Um, it, as you know, I mean, I, I, I'm really busy in the winter. They don't let me out much while we're brewing. So I'm kind of like stuck in the brewery for most of the winter. And then um, you sort of like recover gradually from the spring. And by the time you're sort of like mentally fit again, it's like almost time to start brewing again. So um, we sake brewers aren't much use for stuff in the off season. So at, at that stage in the year, I was like still kind of like coming out of hibernation, really. So I hadn't really mentally prepared myself very well. And I mean, I, I, because this is only the second time I've been to Australia, only the first time to be involved with any kind of like a large scale sake event. And so, I mean, I was, I suppose I was really thinking that it was, was expecting it to be a, a smaller scale event than it really was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, as you were there, I mean, it was um, this colossal event with 1,500 people drinking insane amounts of sake yeah. um, in the, the Queen Victoria market in Melbourne. So it was a, it was a really, really huge event. And I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't really prepared for that. But, you know, I mean, it's, 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 always, I mean, it's always good to be pre- surprised in that way. And there was yeah. like, so many people 
there. And partly because there are so many people there and partly because of the um, the state of the, the market in Australia as well. I mean, there's a really interesting mix of people. So like um, ridiculously knowledgeable people um, and a load of people who really knew almost nothing about sake and, and just heard that this is an event where you can drink stuff. And, you know, it's fun to talk to people who know a lot about it. But it's really fun to talk to people who know nothing about it and, um, you know, to see what people feel like when they get to taste it for the first time. Yeah. And the importers we work with, those guys, um, they, they work with this um, website called SakeNet Australia. And their big thing is hot sake, which is um, something that I'm, I'm, I'm pretty keen on as well. And uh, Melbourne weather being the way it was, we were the only, we were the only one of the stands that had hot sake in the, in the Melbourne winter. Um, and, of course, Philip, when he did the TWTT Zoom room session, um, kind of shocked some of us by telling us to crank up that sake to, to 70 degrees of plus, <laughs> which is something I think most of us had never done before. And uh, I, personally, I was very surprised with the results. And now when I do drink Tamagawa warm, it has to be not warm, but hot, hot, hot. And I, when Philip was in Melbourne and we were at the sake net booth and we were heating sake for the Melbourneites, uh, all I could hear Philip saying to Taka was, it's not hot enough. <laughs> it's not hot enough. It's not hot enough yet. But of course, Time Machine was also one of the stars of the of the festival. It was like great to see everyone enjoying that and coming and warming themselves up with a hot sake and just generally having a good time. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it too. And uh I knew it was going to be be busy, but it was um there was kind of no there was no downtime. It was it was like constantly busy. There were no real waves of uh, of lull, no lulls. But uh, that's that's encouraging. You know the the amount of people that were there each day. It was a two day festival, and seeing the interest and like you said, you know some a lot of a lot of people did have quite a good general knowledge of of sake, and that's really encouraging to see. Uh, of course, you joined us for session number 19. I must make a correction. In the last episode uh, of this podcast, I said that the TWTT session with Philip was season two in 2021, but it was actually way back in 2020. It was the very first season. It was session 19. And those people that listen to this podcast, many of them were probably at the uh, Taste with the Torji Zoom Room session. So we're going to avoid um, a lot of those uh, questions about some um, why did you come to Japan? When did you come to Japan? All of that sort of thing. We'd like to talk a little bit about um, about about your past, but perhaps not go that far back. Julian and Maki have got some questions for you. Um, Julian, we might start with you. Well, one of the things that I've always wanted to ask ask you, Philip, and as as we just mentioned, we, we have I've met you a couple of times before, but only at tastings when we've never been able to have a, a decent chat. One of the things that I've always been curious about your experience is. I think, I mean, everyone's very well aware of your position as the, you know, the first uh, foreign brewer in Japan. And I don't, I mean, I I don't think people forget that, but I think sometimes it it gets taken for granted that you started brewing at a time before the internet, before smartphones, before electronic dictionaries. And as someone who, myself, who also came to Japan in 2000, before all those things, and I was learning Japanese in the very much old school way with paper dictionaries and whatnot. And and now these days, there's a lot of, not, I wouldn't know if I'd say a lot, but there's a, a handful more of um, foreign brewers here. I just sometimes think there's this massive debt that people owe to you and to John Gortner for getting the, the vocabulary of sake out there in English in the in the late 90s, early 2000s kind of thing. I, I really am curious about how that, how that experience was of getting into sake and learning about brewing when you just would have been getting battered with words that you wouldn't have known and there's no way to look them up. You know, there's, Ginjo is not in the dictionary. It's, you know, 
how how was the those early years of, of learning about sake and learning how to brew? Um, well, um, yeah. So so uh, I came to Japan straight out of university. I didn't speak any Japanese and uh, bumped into the wrong people pretty quickly. And these two Japanese friends of mine, the three of us, were hanging out and going to concerts. And then we started drinking sake together and doing tastings and rice planting and a whole bunch of other stuff. And it, all three of us gave up our real jobs and became sake brewers. And so, I mean, I, I like languages. I mean, I did languages at university, so I, I enjoyed learning languages. So it's, it was maybe not such a traumatic experience for me as it would have been, as it would be for people who find languages a real, really unpleasant challenge. Um, but I mean, I'd only been in, in Japan three years when I, when I started uh, working as a, a, a sake brewer for a living. So I mean, by that stage, I'd been here three years, so I could like struggle along in everyday conversation. And I mean, I could actually um, do pretty well in Izaka, which is where I, in, in sake bars and stuff, which is basically where I learned most of my Japanese anyway. And then you go to a sake brewery and of course, there's a whole bunch of technical vocabulary that you have to use. And the people I worked with were all from the same area of Hyogo Prefecture and all spoke challenging dialect, even though it was the same part of the same Kansai region of Japan, it was a different prefecture. And those guys, I mean, they were they were pretty much all in their 60s and from the country so there were there was sort of uh, extra uh, bit of dialect in the mix to make everything even more complicated and yeah i mean so i mean when i came here as you say back in the the dark ages before the internet or smartphones and stuff um, and i mean i got interested in sake at that stage there was there was only one book in english on the subject of sake so obviously i bought that and the only other source of information really is i mean is to to talk to people and drink their stuff um, and listen to people what people say and so when I joined the brewery, the, the owner there, they, he, he enrolled me in a, a correspondence course in brewing science. And so every day for four years, um, a little book arrived, a little textbook arrived with a test. And you read the book, you read the, the text, and then you fill out the test and you send it back. And I did that for four years. And that's pretty much how I learned. I mean, I could, I could read in a very limited way. That, but most of my reading and writing skills in Japan came from doing that correspondence course in brewing science. So I can read a I can read a brewing science textbook more easily than I can read a, a novel because my like my Japanese is like really lopsided. Um, so in those days, I mean, there were there was no internet; it was all printed word or, or word of mouth, which which is is its own thing. And I mean, you are kind enough to say that uh, John Gortner and I maybe made life um, easier for you guys when you were, when you started out learning because we did put a, a load of information out there in English, which mm. Had maybe been available so much again now now we have the internet you know so there's like uh, there's loads of information everywhere information of variable quality right like this it's it's no problem finding information if you want to you know i mean you know here we are i mean i mean there's there's two of us in osaka one in tokyo one in australia talking and speaking to each other in real time which like is normal now but i mean that was like star trek thing in when i arrived in japan it was like yeah. the unthinkable it's kind of alarming to think how much the world has changed and speaking of how things have changed in in your uh your your book the the insider's guide to sake i've always liked the an anecdote of how you were riding to the brewery one night and crashed your bike and went to the brewery with a, a bleeding forehead or all, all covered in blood and, and you still put push through your shift yeah, um yeah. is do you find is brewing is the brewing world come a bit more easier not easier but a bit more uh employee employee friendly yeah i think it has i mean in in those days the it, it was still the old school the old school version of the of the toji system where um my my boss and his his brew his workers they all came from basically the same village they were all farmers and so they arrived at the brewery when their ice harvest was finished in autumn and they lived there until spring um and so you know they ate three meals a day there um and 
you start early in the morning and you work and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the middle of the night and stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, it was very physically challenging in those days. I mean, it was it was totally taken for granted that that you wouldn't get a day off from autumn till spring. You work every day, all day. So yeah, that was that was that was pretty challenging. I mean, I mean, so for the first fifteen to twenty years of my, my working life, most of those years I worked two hundred days straight without a day off, and that's kind of um, exhausting. You know? um, and yeah. I don't think there are many people who do it like now, like that now. I mean, there are a lot more people breweries now which brew with a much more corporate structure. And as as things have kicked in that way, if if you're trying to brew in a very corporate structure, then it becomes difficult to have people getting up in the middle of the night to look after stuff. So a lot of breweries have found workarounds for that stuff now. And the brewery I work for, I mean, my my guys are all seasonally employed. So I said goodbye to them in spring and I'll see them again in autumn when we start again. And because we're because they're all seasonally employed, it means that we can we can work around the labor laws with a bit more flexibility than you can if it's like a totally corporate structure of people who are employed year round. And so we do middle of the night stuff, but we do it by rotation. I mean, there was a time when I did all that stuff myself, getting up in the middle of the night to look after stuff. And now in our brewery, there are four of us who do that by rotation. So I get more sleep than I used to. And uh, even though my guys are seasonally employed, I mean, they I, I give them one day off a week. So, you know, yeah, I mean, that, in the old days, days off, they they weren't, they didn't happen. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways, it is, it is a, a lot easier than it was. But I mean, you you've been hanging around breweries enough to know that small traditional breweries they're not as hard as they used to be, but right. they're still pretty challenging workplaces. I think. Was there was there ever a point where you you know, especially coming from a Western background, where you just kind of thought this this is as much as you love sake that like the way that this this the brewing system at the you know the the life you just went this this is just not right. I'm I'm out. Did you ever have that point, or was it just? I, I've been asked that by Japanese people a bunch of times, and and I mean. I, I always say like in like this was a, I suppose back 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 when it was like expected that I would work from autumn to spring without a single day off. In those days, I used to tell people that I've I'd never wanted to quit, but I would have like given an arm and a leg for the odd day off, you know, just to 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 sleep and to recover a bit. But yeah, I mean the the I mean, the closest point I ever came to thinking about leaving was I mean I, I, this is the fourth brewery I've worked for, and you know, changing breweries is is a hard thing to do. And there was a there was a time between breweries, and I mean it's it's hard on me, but I mean it's really hard on your family. My long suffering wife has been putting up with this nonsense for thirty odd years now. And like what, there was one time between breweries, and I was thinking like, can I really put my wife through this again? Um, and thinking, you know, maybe I really ought to do something which is like more more humane for 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 her too. And I went I went out I went for a drink in a, a bar in Osaka. This guy was like a, a, a really good friend to me and, and lots lots of brewers. And I mean I hadn't told him that I was I was thinking that stuff. And you know there's, there's this word in in Japanese tenshoku, um, which um, is translated as vocation. But the word ten is like heaven, and shoku is work. So it's 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 heavenly work work that heaven has decided for you in vocation in English. And I hadn't told this guy that I was thinking about all this stuff and like. Just off, off the, I can't even remember what we were just talking normal stuff. And he suddenly said to me, you know, I've, I've always thought that sake brewing is Philip's vocation. And he, he, he said that to me. So I couldn't really stop doing it after that. <laughs> so that was the only time, really. But I mean, yeah. the hard thing is, I mean, the work itself, I mean, it never stops being interesting uh, mm. because it, it's kind of agricultural. So, you know, it looks it looks like you're doing the same thing every year, but you never ever get to do the same point. Right. 
even though you're in given like the, the amount of experience that you have now, I've kind of heard this from other, a lot of other brewers that they, you know, they've, there's the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the senpai kohai relationship of, you know, having your mentors and, and things like that. And you've, what would you, you know, like 30 plus years into, into brewing now, do you still have um, any brewers that you've got on speed dial that you're, you know, whenever you hit a, a speed hump or something that you've never seen before happens that you, you, you call on for like advice or troubleshooting? Yeah, I mean- I think I think most working brewers have a network of people um, who who they'll reach out to when 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 something weird happens. Um, I think also you reach a certain point, and I mean you you ask people for advice. Basically, you kind of know what the answer is, and they they tell you there's there's no answer, and you kind of knew that anyway. And so then you just like bite the bullet and get on with it, as you probably would have done anyway. But it's always easier to do if you've had a chance to talk through it with someone. Sure. Yeah, but not the not the. I mean, one of one of the master. I've worked with four different master brewers, and uh, one of them was one of my original two drinking friends. So I mean, we have a kind of like a, a weird relationship because although we've worked together briefly as well, I mean, we've been drinking to it with each other for like thirty five years now. So um, we can we can sort of basically ask each other anything and tell each other anything. So that's kind of a, a different case. But the other three guys were all. Um, old school master brewers from the traditional guilds um, and so I mean I, I don't I don't ring those guys up to to ask them stuff anymore like the well the, the, the first of my mentors passed away um, actually in the, the second year that I was at current brewery just he, he had young and just long enough to drink the first sake that I made there which was good of him um, and the the second guy I worked worked for he, he taught me loads of stuff about how breweries work and uh, he, he retired about uh, 10 years ago now and he, he's from uh, Iwate Prefecture and I was up there for a, um, a study session the Brewers Guild up there and I, and I went to see him he's, he's the other day he's like 85 and he's converted a section of his house to a, a corgi making factory and so he as well as being a farmer he also has a like thriving business making corgi and amazake and shio corgi so wow. he's retired but kind of not retired right fermentation passion I love it <laughs> Maki I know one of your questions was about inspiration in in creating different sake, different styles of sake? My question is probably pretty general in the, in uh, when you design a sake and you have a quite a, a bit of a lineup um, brewing in Tamagawa, what inspires you to come up with a new design or new sake? Um, well, when, when I joined this brewery 17 years ago, we, we knew that we had basically, we had to do a lot of new stuff. So the boss said, like, give me ideas. And so, you know, we, we, we approach that from lots of different directions. I mean, some of it, I mean, is, part, is partly just stuff that I like. I mean, the re- you have the omachi sake there, like, and they'd never used omachi in that brewery before, but I love that rice. So I asked if we could do omachi because I'd be sad not to. And uh, the same with like Yamaha and Kimoto stuff. They, they hadn't done that before, but I mean, I mean, I, I love doing that stuff too. And also, I mean, we were at that stage, the brewery was very locally focused. It was one of those old-fashioned breweries that just makes sake for the local people to drink um, and so our most distant customer at that point was like 20 minutes away by car um, and so you know we knew that, that we, we needed to to branch out um, and the obvious way to branch out was to to work with specialist retailers which is the market that I'd been familiar with until then and you know I mean Yamaha and Kimoto I mean there are, there are a lot of fans of that kind of stuff in those kind of specialist retailers market so you know i mean it, it, it was not just me doing what i liked it was also that it was a pretty good guess as well that there would be there would be a, um, an audience for that kind of stuff and so you know we did those kind of things where they were partly just because it was stuff i liked we we, we did some things where 
Um, it was rice inspired where we had a particular rice variety or, or kind of a rice growing area and wanted to do something with that. Uh, time machine has come up. I mean, the, the reason we did that was, was because we wanted to make a sake that one with ice cream was where that started from. And we, like most breweries, us included in those days, sake sales and brewing, it's all like really concentrated at the end of the year. And so breweries tend to be like frantically busy um, until the end of the year and then have nothing to do through the summer. So we said, OK, let's make a, a summer sake. And uh, that one, we made one called Icebreaker, um, which we suggest drinking over ice, which is like being really successful for us. And, you know, that's that was a really big thing because, you know, when I started, there was not much there was not much in the way of sales in the summer and not much in the way of work either. And neither of those things happily are true for us now. Yeah. We have plenty of stuff going on in the summer, too. So, you know, I mean, we, we were just thinking about some sometimes it was about aiming for a specific drinking situation. Sometimes it was about making the most of specific rice varieties or a specific time of year. And I mean, I, I just find that, that I mean, there, there are so many different things that you can do with sake that it's, it's like really easy to come up with ideas. One of our, our Osaka retail customers, we, when I was talking with him right at the beginning, um, he said he said to me, it's like really, really easy. You, you make a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and the, the ones that sell, you keep on doing. And the ones that don't sell, you stop doing. And we did a bunch of stuff and they all sold and we ended up with way too many products, um, <laughs> which, is, which is okay. We have, once a year, we'll have a meeting and we'll say, we've got too many products. We, we need to get rid of some. And we'll talk around like getting rid of a couple of products. And then somebody will say, yeah, but we really want to drink it. And then the meeting ends. We never get rid of any products. So. That's where we are. Do you get inspired outside of the sake world, like by traveling or drinking some other kinds of drinks, eating? Not so, not so much. But, I mean, like a, a lot of people, Japanese people especially, I think they assume because um, I look like this because I'm foreign um, and that I'm making sake that that a lot of my inspirations must come from what the wine world does or because I'm British, what whiskey does and stuff like that. And I mean, I think I can say with confidence that that, I've never ever done a single thing that has been inspired by wine or whiskey. I, mean, I just I just think all the all the fun stuff that I've done has been suggested to me by the fun stuff that sake does when you make it and drink it or try it at different temperatures or age it or whatever. Um, and so Japanese people often say our sake as well it, that it, it drinks like a, a whiskey or something, and I kind of see that as well. But it's not because I. Or, Oh, I love drinking whiskey. It's not because I've ever set out to make sake that was my whiskey. The only exception I can think of was when I when I first joined this brewery. I like I like aging sake, and that takes time. Um, and when you join a new brewery, obviously the first sake you make is new. There's no old sake there. And I was like, I tried to think if there was a way around this. And I read in a wine book um, that on uh, the, the island of Madeira, there's a there's a, a a quick a quick way of making Madeira where you heat the stuff up with um, with hot water pumped through metal pipes. Um, so I thought, okay, may- maybe I should do that. And then I then I talked to customers I knew who knew a lot about wine, and they said, yeah, but that's the really cheap and nasty stuff. And the only way to really do it is just to leave it years and years at ambient temperatures. So so I never did it. I thought about it, but it never happened. What about other breweries, sake? Like, do you do you uh, make a point of trying different kinds of sake from different breweries? Yeah, at the time, I mean. Like I said, I mean, I I started. I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't born as a sake brewer. Um, <laughs> I, came, I came to Japan when I was 22, and for three years I was just a, a civilian drinker. And I mean, I don't. I don't think that's that's ever gone away. Um, it's it, it certainly informs what I do because at our brewery, we our, our is not ours is not a very fashionable style of sake. 
and uh, you know we 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 do the the various things we do because we think they taste good although a lot of the times they're they're really sort of going in exactly the opposite direction to the industry as a whole but yeah i mean i i still i still drink other people's sake the entire time i mean i've, I've uh, got three bottles of other brewery sake next to my right hand you know, waiting for me to, to to crack them i've never i've never got bored of drinking other people's sake and i mean you know i mean obviously as, as part of my job um, i i'm at a lot of tastings through the year as well as a uh, sometimes as a judge and sometimes just as a, a sort of a tasting participant so I, I i drink quite a lot of sake in the course of the year <laughs> even aside from the stuff i'm actually drinking that makes sense so you've worked in well within Kansai region, I think. Well, you you got trained in Iwate too. Do you have a favorite sake food pairing that sake, you're... sake food pairings? I mean, there there are there are very micro things. Mm. I mean, there's been a bit of a thing now where you find on the back of sake labels, you'll you'll say this sake goes with this dish or that dish, and that 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 always seems sort of a bit too narrow to me. I mean, we do we do tasting events with restaurants and stuff all all the time. And if there's any way that we can do it, we will always ask to to taste through the sake with exactly the same menu before the event. So, like when when I was in Melbourne this time, we did a tasting dinner there, and uh, the the restaurant people were kind enough to to roll out the menu before the thing started. Um, and so, me and the the sake net guys, we we tasted we tasted through the food with the sake in advance. Um, and ideally, we we do it a week before, and then we can like um, shift things if the if the matchings aren't as good as you hope. Because e- e- even if the the dish is it says the same dish on the piece of paper on the menu, um, with just a little sort of twitch in the way that you cook it, or different condiments or or different seasonings, um, the, the what looks like the same dish on paper, it can taste really different and work really really differently with sake. So um, we're 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 very kind of relaxed about pairings in in our brewery partly because of, of this thing I've, I've said where it, it comes down to such sort of uh, minute specific things i think in in a general way if you're not doing it at home when when you do whatever you like i think in the rest of the world and this is really the job of bars and restaurants because they know what their food is it, whatever, whatever it says on the menu i mean if you walk into like three different restaurants that have the same thing on the menu it's going to be like three di- work in three different ways and go with three different sake um, and so, you know, I, I really think that's the joy of going, going drinking in good bars and restaurants is, is that you can do that for, stuff for you and, and really do that next level matching thing where it's not just okay, where the food and the sake suddenly come out like as a gloriously different, fantastic thing. Yes, I agree. Um, I'm more curious about more like on the comfort zone, your go-to food and sake that works always for you. Again, again uh, I'm I'm really relaxed about that because I really don't expect to find any food that won't go with our sake. Mm-hmm. I mean, our sake is, tends to be, I mean, a lot of it is pretty robust and full flavoured. So if you sort of ask me to sort of draw up a, a league, league match, league table of, of ideal matches for our sake, so, I mean, if it's like white fish sashimi, the absolute lightest end of, of the Japanese flavor spectrum, I, I'm not sure I would say that tamagawa sake is the obvious or immediate best match for that really, really light flavored food because the sake is like going to be really big. But, you know, if you, you get up to to like fatty fish or, or the, the, the oily fish, then anything from then on, we reckon our sake is going to go with absolutely everything. And at the other end of the spectrum, the, where, where the food gets like um, stronger flavored or pungent or stinky, um, and that where that can be challenging with some sake. But, and our sake is usually really, really, really happy in that zone as well. I just had gorgonzola for tea. I mean, our sake is like 
<laughs> great with that stuff or stinky fermented stuff. Any, anything that's a bit challenging usually works really well with our factory. I missed out on that uh, that dinner at Supernormal in Melbourne. I uh, I went to every other every other part of the festival. <laughs> <laughs> and and side and sideshows, sake sideshows, but sadly couldn't make that that night. I, I mean, Supernormal do a wonderful job. They're they're very good at what they do, and every time I've dined there, I've enjoyed some delicious sake. I was quite disappointed to miss it, and I I believe they served most of the sake pairings was served warm. Is that called hot? Was that correct? Well, we did we did a whole bunch of temperatures. We had I think we had one thing cold just to yeah. show that such a possible um and we had uh one or two at room temperature and then some some as hot as we could get them yeah wonderful yeah. And, and am i right in i've heard that one of the dishes surprised you immensely and was possibly one of your favorite pairings well, you- was, they had they had um um a ramen dish um and it was kind of uh tantan min with like it was like uh with sesame seasoning and it was a really really thick soup and it had like really hot, spicy bits in it, and there was like really, really chunky, fatty chashu in there as well. It's just this, and and uh, onsen tamago, like boiled eggs as well. And it was just like a really thick dish with lots and lots of different layers of flavour. And they served it with our, our the the same yamahai that you have there, I think. Matt. And it was it was just spectacular because it was the the food was like really layered, and and so the, the layers of the food flavour. And the layers of the sake flavor were just doing all these like amazing things together. It was like having a fireworks display in your mouth. It was <laughs> Sounds delicious. So, I want to yeah. just quickly ask as well, because you just, as you mentioned, like a lot of the Tamagawa sake is known for being quite robust. And being somewhat familiar with at least a couple of the breweries that you, you worked at before, as far as I know, you weren't really making those types of sake before you were at Tamagawa, at least to not to a, a great extent. So, was that something that you were kind of always sitting on? Thinking one day when I get my when I'm told you know I got I got rule of the roost I'm going to do this kind of sake and then if, if that like is the case like because you weren't making that type of sake again as far as I know in a great deal where did that confidence come from that you could make that type of sake if you hadn't been making it so much previously I mean I think I think part of it is just is I mean, where people talk about sake regionality and terroir um, which is is a subject that I tend to avoid because. Um, I don't think it translates, well, it translates, but it doesn't translate in the same way. Re- regionality, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I, if people ask about this, I mean, I say the, the really quick answer to sake regionality is, is sake from hot places and sake from cold places. So, and I mean, I think, you know, it shakes down to, to West Japan and East Japan. And I mean, it, it, it's, it's sort of mechanically, it's like very obvious that if you have a higher fermentation temperature, it gives you a different kind of sake than if you have a lower fermentation temperature. Um, if you have the same sake and you store it at a low temperature, high temperature, you end up with different stuff. Um, and so there's a lot of climate-driven uh, stuff there. Um, and, you know, now now people in the west of Japan can refrigerate to death if they want to, and some do. But I think if you if you do a big tasting, you can you can still see this nice organic difference between um, the the lighter sake that you get from from the north of Japan where it's colder, and then the earthier stuff that comes out of Western Japan. And I mean. I've, my the the brewers union that I first w- worked for was the Tajima union, um, and there aren't all that many of those guys left. But I mean, that as a union, they they made these kind of like umama supernova sakes. They were really 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 chunky meaty sake. Um, and so you know that's that's the the air the kind of zone that I I learned to brew in. You you probably know that I was at this Nara brewery many other for a while, 
but they like mm. brew totally different now, sake now from what they did when I was there. When um, yeah. the first few years I was there was this uh, guy from Tajima who made indestructible sake that aged really well. And I, I was just in uh, Fukushima at a brewer's, a brewery friend's place the other day, and he he dragged out a bottle of, of sake from, that my boss, my first boss made in Heisei 4, which is like 1992, right? Um, and it was spectacularly good and still going. I mean, if we if we if we hadn't drunk it all, you know, we could have kept half of it and kept it for another five or ten years. It was still looking. Mm. And so, you know, that's the kind of that's kind of where I learned to brew. Um, so, I mean, it is you know, the, I think I think sort of anchored in that kind of like slightly earthy West Japan kind of uh, tradition. And when I got to Tamagawa and and we had to make new stuff. I mean, some some of it was kind of I mean, it's it's a process. Yeah, I mean, so I I I was thinking through things through for myself and then in a very good way when I when I got to this brewery the owner said okay you know there are a couple of things that we pay the rent with a couple of the existing things and we'll leave them as they are and the other stuff you do do what you like and I, I we, we did it we did a lot of fairly extreme things and I think a lot of a lot of brewery owners in that kind of situation would would kind of look over your shoulder and say really you're going to do that um, yeah. And he, he never did that, you know. Um, and I, I think if you if you like creak around on the edges of orthodoxy, um, sometimes interesting things can happen. But basically, you're still tweaking around on the edges of orthodoxy. Whereas, you know, we got to just like re- really take the brakes off and let stuff do what it wanted to do. I think modern brewing can can be very um, interventional in that sense. Partly partly because you know people have so much equipment. You know, they can they can if they want their their sake to ferment at ten degrees Celsius, then they they can a lot of breweries can now flick a switch and it will ferment at 10 degrees Celsius. And, and it's kind of hard if you have that equipment to to really see what microorganisms want to do or are trying to do. And so, you know, at this brewery, I, I got I got to do some things and a, a whole bunch of stuff. You know, some of it is relatively orthodox of it, orthodox, and some of it really is not orthodox at all. But when we wanted to, you know, we we didn't have to sort of put the brakes on or be cautious or anything. You know, we could really let things go as far as the microorganisms wanted to take them, and, and that can give you really, really interesting results. But go, <clears throat> I'm speaking though before of, of, of Kanzaki. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm not trying to catch you out with this, but okay. I am gonna, I am gonna quote you um, from again from your 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 first book, The Insider's Guide to Sake, which if anyone hasn't read or doesn't have, that's insane. Even though it's it's quite old now, it's still like the the original go to book for for anyone getting into sake. But in talking in talking about serving sake in your book, you you uh, you said. Uh, to to drink fine sake hot is barbarism incarnate. Experiment, please. explore, and please do not overheat. Apart, apart from the barbaric bit, I still agree with all of that. Okay. Um, it's, just, it's just that overheating means different things for different sake. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, and I mean totally guilty as charged. I mean, if you if you read my the, the two books that I put out, if you read them, you can kind of see me struggling my way through this morass of, of nonsense that you're taught when you start to do maybe not anymore maybe you guys are doing this better than now but you know you're, you're taught that sake is better young and you're not allowed to drink good sake hot um, and exactly you know so that's me that's me like saying what i learned you know um, right and then and then i joined the brewery and uh after the sake that we drank with dinner they they poured a 1.8 liter bottle into a kettle and put it onto a direct flame um, and made it really hot and we drank it and it was great so you know i mean i was i was wrong and so, so in, yeah, I mean, so Simone was saying about that, that that she and some other people were maybe shocked that I was saying like heated up to seventy degrees, and I was having fun in Melbourne like teasing Tucker about the sake not being hot enough. Um, and I mean, I, it's uh, it's what you like, you know. It, people drink can drink sake at any temperature that they like, 
But I'm really sad if they're if they're not drinking daiginjo sake or unpasteurized sake or my sake um, warm or hot because they read in a book that I wrote 30 years ago that that, that was wrong or, or heard it somewhere else. There, there, is, there is sake that really doesn't work hot, that, that really only, as far as I can see, is good to drink cold. I mean, if you still like it hot, then then go ahead. I mean, that's that's your your privilege. But I mean, there's a lot of sake out there, the really flowery, fruity ones now. Um, most of the people who make that, they, they don't recommend that you drink it hot. Um, and I, I think most of it doesn't drink good hot. I think it, it, it's, it's, it's nice when it's cold and and not much not much fun at other temperatures. So and and I, I don't I, I, I kind of gave up like saying what's right and wrong. I think it's just a completely wrong headed way of approaching this business of having fun with sake. Totally. Um, but, but because there, there is still a lot, lot of, you still find people, partly some of the people who read it in my book. So I'm partly to blame for this as well. But, you know, saying that you, you're only allowed to heat sake up to a certain temperature and stuff. And I mean, that's for some sake, you heat it up above a certain temperature and then it goes all flabby on you and it's not fun to drink anymore. So if it's that, then you don't want to do it. But the, the reason I, I'm saying to you guys, eat our sake up like tea is not because I'm trying to be difficult. It's because we really think that that is the most delicious way to drink our sake. So we hope that other people will try it. And if they don't like it, they can drink it another way. But so so when I started doing all this, you're, you're taught all this like really narrow rules about what you can do and what you can't do. And the more I drank, the more I found that was not true. And and the the, the wider the goalposts got there, just in terms of what was fun. And I mean, that maybe also goes back to, you know, why we do all the stuff we do in, in our brewery now is because um, I, I, I learned all that stuff way back then. You know, that I was taught that the best sake um, is made by polishing the rice further, which I think is complete nonsense now. And I was taught that low fermentations give you better sake, which is obviously nonsense. It gives you a different kind of sake. It doesn't make it better. And so, you know, earlier in my career, I was a bit more cautious because I'd been taught all this stuff. And, you know, my, my, if, if you like these funky things that we're doing in this brewery now, then you owe my, my boss a big um, bit of thanks because he, he let me off the hook. He, he didn't say, we really shouldn't do that, or you really can't do that, or are you kidding, or any of that stuff. He just sort of stepped back and, and, and let me do it, which meant, you know, meant that I could, I could think about these things that I'd been thinking about, um, but there was no real place to express them in, in other breweries that I worked with. So we got to do a whole bunch of fun stuff that a lot of which I'd never done before. I mean, which I think still, you know, in a lot of cases, not many other people are even still doing now, but they're a big part of what we do for sure. It must be a rarity though, what you're saying, you, you kind of had that free reign and you do hear a lot of stories, sadly, from from breweries where the, you know, the the owner and the Torji don't necessarily see eye to eye, they're not on the same page and, and often it does result in the Torji leaving and finding a job elsewhere. Um, you seem to have a really good relationship with your boss, <laughs> with the owner of, of Kinoshita and it's probably partly, to, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to speak for you, but I would imagine that that plays a role in why you continue to really love your job so much and, and you know, having that, that, that sense of freedom in being able to create the style of sake that you want to create. I mean, you're not really, you're not dictated to, um, you're fully supported by somebody higher up than you. And, and I think, you know, it's clearly doing wonders for, for the brewery and, and, and for the sake. Well, I mean, I mean, it, you're, the thing that in, in the old days, people who made sake and people who owned breweries, they were never the same people. And that's kind of changed in, in the last in the 30 years that I've been doing this. So, you know, there are, there are a lot of um, brewery owners and their children now who are actively involved in the brewing process. 
didn't used to be a thing. But I mean, basically, I mean, if you if you've got this brewery structure where you have a, an owner and a, a hired torgy, an employee torgy, then you know, obviously, you're you're different people. You sometimes you have different ideas, um, and yet you, you have to find a way to for you to to coexist and for it to work. And, and breweries that are are going well are breweries where the owner and the, the the people doing the brewing or the the torgy who's the leader of that process you, you have to find common ground and and you have to be working this and as, as you've said you know you, you've seen i'm sure examples i think we were talking about one the other day weren't we where you know that where this this comes off the rails and they can't they can't reconcile those differences anymore and because the the owner is basically usually born there and lives there that means that the torgy then has to go somewhere else mm. As I've said already, when I got there, the, the boss said, you know, we, we need new ideas. So it was it was really easy for me to, to make new ideas because that's what he told me to do. That was his idea, not my idea. And it was it was it was a luckier opportunity for me. It meant that I could like do mad experiments and, and do do a bunch of stuff that may, maybe would have been difficult in, a, in an environment where where you had to be more cautious. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we started we started from a with a, a blank slate. And as I said before, I mean, he, he, he could have been looking over my shoulder and, and tried to filter things and keep it more conventional. And then we would have had, I don't know, we, we might have had a different kind of fun than we've been having now. But it's lucky that, I mean, it hasn't, hasn't been like huge conflict in what are we going to do? Uh, because, you know, the boss, at the beginning, he was just like interested to see with what mad stuff I was going to come up with next. And I mean, the, 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 the big event in, in our brewery's recent histories is that the boss discovered that he liked old science. Mm. He, he didn't know before after i'd been there about three or four years and we had like pasteurized old stuff kicking around he discovered that it was like fantastic to drink hot with your dinner and so he's like spent the uh the intervening 15 years or so investing in warehouses and stuff like a lunatic so that we can age a whole bunch of sake for other people to drink as well as i hear you're embracing of all kinds of preferences that people have for sake and you've just told us about your long journey of your sake drinking and making. I'm wondering what what your views on um, sake competitions might be. Well, so I mean, when you're talking about sake competitions, the the kind of model and the the anchor for them all is um, the new sake awards uh, in Hiroshima, and they're a kind of very narrow technical thing where um, it says new sake awards, but it's actually um, it's only daijinja sake and it's new, so. Um, it's all been made within the last couple of months. And I mean, everyone knows roughly what the parameters there are for medal winning sake, that it has to be low in acidity and low in amino acids, um, and preferably with uh, uh, pronounced ginjo uh, aromatics. Uh, but, you know, the, the really fruity ones, and, they, and, and in recent years also increasingly sweet. And so everyone kind of knows that those are the rules for that competition. And I mean, in a, in a lot of ways, that's like very different from the, the style that we normally brew in. And some breweries choose to to like brew brew sake specifically for the contest, so that it will be uh, fit those parameters and win medals. Which is which is one way of approaching this like very technical event, which is which is fine. I think. I mean, we we stopped brewing specifically for that event um, a long time ago now. Um, and so you know, it's new sake, and it's a very small sliver of sake, and it's a it's a very um, narrow section of the whole picture, which which is fine, especially I mean because. The people who do the judging, they are, they are, a lot of them are actually very academic types with, um, and, and they're trying to like make this thing as objective within narrow parameters as they can. But it's like very, very narrow. And a lot of people who, who made contests uh, in Japan or overseas after that, you know, they, 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 you, you hear, talk to those guys and a lot of them say, well, that, 
you know, in Hiroshima, it's all too too narrow a field. And the parameters are too narrow, and we're going to change it this way or that way. But it it seems to me that by and large, when you when you look at the the prize winners in in a lot of these competitions, they tend to be even. Say, for example, if you have like a, a Yamaha section or a Junmai section, if you look at the the prize winners in these um, contests, they tend to be like very much on the Ginjo end of the spectrum within those categories. And so, I mean, I, I kind of do think it's kind of um, a structural problem we have in the industry is, is that formal judging systems tend to, uh, like, so that this, it seems like the gravitational pull of Hiroshima is so strong that um, people can't get away from that. Again, you know, I mean, like going back to our experiences here making Tamagawa in the last 17 years, I mean, one one of the reasons we have what, what we have is because the boss never said that, that that's not going to win a medal or we should brew something that will we'll do better in contests. Um, because we, we basically have been doing all the opposite, all the wrong things to win medals in contests for the last 15 years. But like you mentioned, like that type of style of brewing for the competition, it's basically, I kind of often think of it as like a, a it's like a paint by numbers kind of way of brewing because it's, Everyone knows what they have to do to, to reach that certain point at the end, and that they're trying, they're trying, they're targeting that style that they're targeting, so they know what they have to do to get there. So I imagine as a brewer, like often when you're drinking sake, you can when you're drinking sake from other breweries, you can, as a brewer, you can taste it and tell what they did, and go, oh, they've done this and they've done this to get to this this certain style of sake that they've made here. But are there, is there any? You can give a shout out here to any particular brewers by name if you like. But are there any types of sake out there where you drink it? As a brewer, and go, how the hell did they do that? I, I can't do that. How, how, how did that guy make that sake? That's beyond me. Has that ever happened for you? Well, by this stage, I mean, I, 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 I do reckon if, if it's, if it's um, a successfully made sake, then I do reckon to know pretty much how they did it, which is not to say as, that I could always do it myself. Mm-hmm. Like some of the most interesting things that for me to drink are, are well-made things that are really, really different from our sake. Or you know stuff that I I would never think of doing myself. It's kind of fun to come across those things. I mean, if you you mentioned my book. I mean, if you if you you sort of look through the the reviews in there at that stage. I mean, I'd only been brewing sake for a few years, and I'm pretty sure you can find me saying, "How do they do that?" about about sake. And I mean, now now I kind of know how they do that more or less. Yeah. So I mean, I I the difficult ones. If you if you find the sake that's really crashed and burnt, then then that's kind of like a different thing i mean we taste constantly at work and sometimes we'll come across a really 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 bad sake and my guys will say so how how did it get like this and sometimes sometimes i can tell them what went wrong and sometimes it's just like stuff that's so bizarre that i can't imagine how you could actually make sake to taste like uh, which is interesting in its own way although not 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 in a fun to drink way sure I was going to ask about um, if there is a role in competitions, if it, you know people are coming up with different kinds of competitions all the time and now there's the Kanzake Award and whatnot. Right. Do you think there's a role that competitions still play? Well, I mean, I, I think it's great that everyone is doing this stuff. And I mean, I think these are all part of conversations where people are seeing a need for um, expanding expanding parameters and horizons, which I'm all in favour. I think it's absolutely vital that we do that. And I mean, it's, it's really, really, really easy to, to pick holes in these things and point the finger at them. Um, but I mean, I've been I've been on the, the judging end often enough to know how difficult it is to to get around all those problems. So so I mean, I, I don't want to give the impression that that um, I, I think these competitions are, are, are a bad idea. I, mean, I think they're useful part of the conversation. One of the uh, precursors to the national ones in, in Hiroshima is, is that local tax offices do do um, uh, run up to that in the spring. 
and a, and a number of them do a, an autumn one as well. I'm, I've been in Kansai all these years, so I spend a lot of time hanging out at the Osaka Tax Office. So they have a, they have an autumn contest as well, and the autumn one they have a, a a ginjo one, which is basically again it's the same tasting protocols and principles as the Hiroshima thing. Um, but in the in the autumn they also have a hot sake one, um, and they've been doing that for pretty much twenty years now. And you know every, every year every year people taste through and they they mark the sakes and. And there's a kind of uh, exchange of opinions afterwards. And every year people will say, you know, it's like really difficult to judge the hot sake and maybe the temperature is not exactly even. And people will say all this stuff. And, and every year when it comes around to my time, I said, this is all true as problems, but it's like so important that we're, we've got pushing hot sake because it, it, it is such a, a vital part of the whole sake experience. Um, and so, you know, these, these specialists who've been doing this like for 15 or something years in, in Osaka, they're, Every year they get grief from from one of the judges about how how it how it isn't working well or how difficult it is to do whatever. That's always true, but I mean that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean it's something that you should stop doing. If you can host a competition, is there a criteria that you would like to put forth? Well, well. So before I get to that, let me let me just say, I mean the the Osaka competition. I mean if you're doing hot sake, then you know we we like our sake really really hot. But the the judging at the Osaka competition, they they heat that stuff to 45 degrees, which which as you know, I I think is a really bad temperature for most of our sake. But I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, you I mean you you could in an ideal world, I suppose you'd have a 45 degree section and a 55 degree section and a 70 degree section. But those guys, I mean, have have lives as well, so they're not they're not going to do that. Um, so you know, the, it's 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 very it's a very difficult thing to to get these things right. But I mean, going back to the the, the the Hiroshima Awards, where where the the pattern there is, is I mean, the rules are that it has to be new sake, and the the unspoken rules in terms of, of desirable criteria are low acids and low amino acids. So and I've been joking for a while about friends that we need to do the opposite version of that. And if you think about what the opposite would be, would be something like where none of none of the entries can be less than three years old. Um, and you can't ever have had, had them in the fridge. And you have to have more than 2.0 acids and more than 2.0 amino acids. Um, and if, if someone ever makes that competition, then then we'll, we'll, we'll enter lots of sake in that. I think that's a sound idea. It's a, it's a legit category. I'd, 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 I'd be down for that. Well, you, you should do it then, Julia. I mean, I was talking <laughs> about, yeah, we, we'd love to do it if someone else will organise it. Yeah, yeah. So so on the topic of hot sake, kanzake, I'm wondering... Yeah. So obviously, Tamagawa, you recommend serving hot, even the icebreaker, which becomes ice melter when you heat it up to 70 degrees. But before working at Kinoshita and making Tamagawa, were you a big advocate for kanzake? Were you making sake that was designed to serve warm? And when you started making Tamagawa, was it were you making sake that could be served hot or were you making robust sake and then you tried the sake that you made and then you decided that it would be delicious warm. How did, how did that all? Real chicken and egg thing. I mean, it's kind of, I'm not really sure which came first. Mm. Um, I think probably until I joined this brewery, I'd never really heated up unpasteurized sake. I mean, I drunk a little bit at room temperature. I'm not sure I'd heat, I'd ever drunk very much of it hot. I mean, I, I always really liked hot sake ever since, ever since I joined the first brewery and it was like so good for dinner. But I mean, if I say this, I'm, I'm pretty sure that like Julian can like a, uh, Drag, drag out a quote from there's a, there was a time I think probably when I was writing the first book where where I was obsessed with uh, Stohada, um, which is like 
one of these temperature words for hot sake and it means like people's skin so it's like barely hot at all um, and there was there was like a time when i was like totally obsessed with that stuff but now, now the way i feel about that kind of thing is, is is that if it's the kind of sake that will work when it's like barely warm at all um but is not good when it gets hot then probably we didn't want to be like spending all that time and effort fiddling around eating it you should just drink it cold or room temperature and and, and let it let it be and so and i find this the sake that i i enjoy drinking hot most of it basically is like pretty robust and and can and can survive higher temperatures than than the ones you're told are correct in textbook mm. yeah and i mean it, it really is just a matter of preference but the, it seems to me that the the sweet zone for temperature for different sakes is wildly varying i mean so those those kind of sakes that win gold medals in the comp they're really really most of them are only really happy really cold um, and there's there's you know, some of our pasteurized sakes is like really nasty cold and really, really sexy hot. Um, and there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of really clever ones out there where you can drink them cold or room temperature or hot and they, they work at all temperatures. But it seems to me like the best system for this, then you can have one bottle of sake and drink it at whatever temperature you feel like from the same bottle. As well as the serving dilemma is, you know, for, for years, the kind of uh, excuse, I guess, or lack of a better word is when the, of the quality of sake that was being served overseas was people always saying it wasn't handled correctly it was shit unrefrigerated and that kind of things then that's why the sake you were getting in the states or in australia or whatever wasn't good because it wasn't being shipped correctly but then now there's uh with people saying oh it's okay you don't it doesn't actually need to be refrigerated and it's like well why do we put in all this effort to to do refrigerated shipping if you know if it's not if that's not really the the cause of bad sake well i, th- I think this, this this goes goes back to the same issue really i mean i think there is there is some sake which really i mean it's it's, it's brewers expect it to be drunk cold and they hope they drink and they'd probably be pretty offended if you actually drank it hot. Um, and a lot of that sake, basically, I mean, you have to refrigerate it because it, it doesn't last well and it goes downhill really quickly. And so if that's the kind of sake that you're talking about, then if, you, if you've got that unrefrigerated boat going to from Japan to Australia, then, you know, it's already going to be past its peak even before it, it lands on Australian soil. So if that's the kind of sake that you've got, then you're kind of doomed to refrigerate. Whereas, you know, in our our unpasteurized sake, one of the things I've got here is I don't know if you can see this. This is this is our uh, this is unpasteurized, undiluted sake. I don't know if you can see, but it's like really moldy and nasty. Um, and it's it's from brewing year 27, which means that it's like uh, what it's like it's in year 10 now. So this is this is unpasteurized, unfiltered, undiluted. And I'm not sure when I opened it probably a couple of years ago and it's been a room temperature in my house ever since and you can see there's like two glasses of it there and i'm really looking forward to drinking the last two glasses of this stuff which like you're not supposed to be able to do that with sake but if you make it right i mean it, it, it like like my first boss's sake was essentially indestructible as far as i can see and if it's like that then you don't have to worry about having it in the fridge but if if you've got a bottle of sake and it is that, that kind of sake that's going to go downhill quickly yeah, you want to have it in the fridge and yeah, you want to drink it in a couple of, you know, like it says on a lot of sake labels now, say, please drink as quickly as possible after opening. And if it's that kind of sake, then that is the the best way to have the most fun with that kind of sake. And our sake is kind of the opposite system. So you you open it, you leave it kicking around and, and, it, and it gets more fun rather than less fun. But with temperature and all these storage issues and things, all, all it is is about having the most fun you can out of out of your sake and different different sake is uh, are fun in different temperature ranges at different time ranges and all that stuff so again i mean i i don't want to i don't want to tell people you know how they should drink it but um you know there are certain kinds of sake where it makes sense to have it in the fridge how did how did you find the response i mean i, I kind of know a little bit because i was standing next to you a lot of the time but 
How did you find the response? Because you were doing a comparison. I know often we were doing a comparison. We were, they were trying it at, well, it was ambient temperature, which was pretty cold. Personally, I had a few people sort of saying to me, oh, you know, I've been told that you only heat cheap sake. Like, is it, so it, it, again, there was a mixed, you know, a mixed crowd. Some people had a good understanding. Some people had a, a little understanding and some people had no understanding. Well, I mean, I think a, a lot of people like me in the early days, I mean, I was taught that you don't heat up good sake and that the bad, the, the hot stuff is the bad stuff. You know, a lot of people have, have heard that over the years, which is a real shame because it, it just depends on the sake. Um, and I mean, the, the, the guys who sell our sake in Australia, sake net Australia, I mean, those guys are re- religious about heating sake. I mean, it's it's their thing, totally, which is for me is is no no trouble to hang around with those guys at all. And I mean, it, as you, exactly as you say, I mean, it's it's the most fun you can have is if you can have the same sake at different temperatures. If if it's if it's one that works, if they if they work, I mean, then they can be like totally. Or even if they don't work, I mean, like our our unpasteurized our pasteurized sakes that are like really stiff and nasty when they're cold. I mean, it's really interesting to see that and then like heat it up so that it's nice and see how totally different they are. Um, and so we are kind of doing that in miniature for the for the people at that event as far as we could. I mean, with so many people and so little time, but. We gave loads and loads of people a taste of the of the stuff at room temperature and then taste a bit hot. And I mean, even a lot of people who've drunk a lot of sake and, and know a lot about sake, be, because there are all these like uh, like weird prejudices about hot sake, a lot of people out there, even people who, who like sake and have drunk a lot of it, have never come across that, which is to me is like a, a tragic thing because it's like it's so much fun to see how different a thing can be at different temperatures. And also, you know, like our icebreaker sake, I mean, we, we say drink it over ice when it's hot and sweaty in Japan and people do that and it's great, but you can drink it hot too. And it's like a utterly different drink and they're both great. Mm. So why would you miss out on all that fun? And I'm just going to take the needle off the record for the time being. That was a great chat with Philip Harper. For those of you that joined the TWTT Zoom room, Uh, back in 2020 when Philip Harper did a session, it won't come as any surprise to you that what you've just heard was only the first half of our conversation with the Tamagawa Toji. So for the very first time in TWTT, the podcast's very short history, we are going to turn one conversation into two episodes. We really hope you enjoyed listening to episode 12 of this podcast, and I look forward to getting back into the editing room very soon to work on episode 13 the second half of our conversation with Mr. Harper, which will include things like talk of number one yeast and also that Junmai versus Aruten conversation and a whole lot more. Until we get to present that episode to you, we'd like to give a big thanks to our patrons over at Patreon and, of course, a huge thank you to all our listeners. We really appreciate your support. So until next time, stay safe, be kind and keep enjoying sake. Sonny.